Acts 14 is one of those chapters that just gives us an entire narrative of what Paul and Barnabas are doing and and the ministry that they are involved with. And sure enough, that ministry is the proclamation of the gospel. And you know, it gets them in trouble. That's the way that Paul works again and again. We see this kind of pattern and we'll look at it in a moment. Uh, Just, gee, you you present the word and and they want to kill you. Um, It's a tough life for Paul, isn't it? So if you're able, let's stand and I'll read the word of the Lord. Gracious Lord, we come to you today and ask that our eyes would be open to this wonderful portion of your word. Fill us with an understanding of what you call us to do, Lord. Might your Holy Spirit come and give us understanding and insight that we may live these things out. We ask them in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 14. And it came about that Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands." But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without the strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet, and he leapt up and began to walk. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from the vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone, he, gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word at Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, and from which they had been commanded by the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They spent a long time with the disciples. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. So, in the narrative, and that's what Acts is. Acts is a narrative of the early church. It is the work of how, once the ascension of Christ happened, the gospel went out, and how this band of fishermen and and, and, and uh, tax collectors and guys like that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, became so much more than they were before. And they were enabled, basically, to change the world, the known world at that time. So Paul and Barnabas are now in Iconium. This is about 80 miles southwest of Antioch, Pisidia, where they were last week when, as Dan talked. And, of course, they are preaching the gospel. Now, as Dan laid out last week for us the basics of divine election... And in it, he stressed the absolute necessity of evangelism, the absolute necessity of evangelism. Now, you have to understand, Presbyterians uh, are, are um, you, you know, we, we get names, uh, frozen, chosen, and uh, uh, whatever else we get called, okay? Um, up until about 1850, Presbyterians and everyone who, was, who was of, what, believed in Calvinism, we were the evangelists. As a group of people, we were known as the chief evangelists within the church because it was such a driving passion within the church that others should know of the gospel of Christ. Yes, the Lord is gracious. Yes, he calls us, but they will not believe unless they hear the gospel. So up until then, the Calvinists were really the great evangelists throughout the world. It wasn't until kind of a change came about um, through, and, and, and I'm I'm shortening this timeline considerably through uh, things like the tent revivals and preaching such as from uh, Billy Sunday, who was very demonstrative and uh, was a former baseball player and would run around the platform and and, uh, was very emotional. Did we come to a much more, we'll say, persuasive form of presenting the gospel? Up until then, preaching was pretty much this. The sermon which was given would include a very long section of doctrine and then a very long section of application. And then the issue or the command really of belief upon the Lord Jesus Christ would be issued. And from the pages of scripture and the reliance upon the Holy Spirit to bring those to faith, we would see that happen. Now in the days of people like Jonathan Edwards, he would simply go on and on for 90 some minutes in almost monotone. But people would throw themselves out in the aisles at the knowledge of their sin and seek forgiveness and cry out to the Lord. He would be in the middle of the sermon and people would throw themselves out in the aisle just searching for forgiveness because of the power of conviction that would come upon them. Men, women, children. This is who believed. But whatever style... Is, is seen, it is clear that believers are called to share their faith. There's no question about that. 
How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans chapter 10, very clear. They will not believe unless they hear it. And who will tell them? Will society tell them? Will politicians tell them? Will people who have nothing to do with the things of faith tell them? No. They will only hear the gospel from those who believe. That I saw some statistics just this week, and, and I can't recall them all, but it's, it, it's, it's kind of a chart. It said, how did you come to faith? In, in a sense, who told you about the things of Christ? Well, a very small percentage said they came to faith in Christ because they heard it from a preacher. A very small percentage said they heard it on the radio or television. A very small percentage said they read it themselves. 95, 94, 95%, as I recall, said because a friend told them. A friend told them. That's how they heard the good news of Jesus Christ. You say, well, we'll get Randy. I'll share the gospel with them. But really, they want to hear it from you. You know them. You have that relationship with them. You've built those bridges. They are ready to hear the gospel from you. And if not, then you'll be like Paul, and you'll be run out of town. Okay? Now, let's see what we can find here. Now, um, so let's go. Our issue this morning is not really should we evangelize. It's obvious from Scripture again and again and again that we should share what we know to be true from the gospel. It's a resounding yes. The issue is, what should we expect when we share the gospel? What should you expect when you share the gospel? In Acts 14, Luke gives us two responses. Okay? And this is, is this an overgeneralization? Not really. This is pretty much what happened whenever Paul would share the gospel. There would be a riot or there would be a revival. A riot or revival. Now, I just use revival because it has an R, but you understand you can only revive what's already there. It would be a riot or this mass of people coming to Christ and the growth of the church within that community. And if it was a riot, Paul ended up on the outside of town with a lot of bruises on him. And he did it again and again and again. Nothing seemed to stop him as he spread the gospel. Now, I have been in three riots in my life. I know I don't look like much of a, a fighter, but three riots, and, and none of them were a result of me preaching the gospel. Okay? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> One was a cafeteria riot at a school. I was working at the, I don't know whether it was the food or what, but it was a cafeteria riot. Okay, so here in Acts 14, we find the pattern of Paul's life. Preaching, division, persecution, growth. Preaching, division, persecution, and growth. This is the way that it would come. Sometimes riot, sometimes revival, sometimes both would happen in the same city. So let's look at verse 3. Luke tells us the way in which Paul preached the gospel. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Boldly with reliance upon the Lord. See, we are to share the gospel without fear of any man, without fear of what the world can do to us. Now, this is how we're supposed to do it. It doesn't always come out that way, but this is how we're supposed to do it. Why? Because it is not up to me to convince you to believe. It is up to me 
to share what is true and let the Holy Spirit work. And it is up to me to also to ask you and to approach you. They, uh, who was it? It was AT&T was making a sales um, video. This was years ago. And they brought in a girl who had sold something like 10,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. And they interviewed her. And, and they said, well, how did you sell all these cookies? And she said, well, you know, I would go door to door and round the town. And things like my mom would drop me off. They said, well, how did you sell these cookies? And she said, well, sooner or later, you have to ask if they want to buy them. That's what it comes down to. We share the gospel, and sooner or later, we have to ask, do you want to believe? Has the Lord moved in your heart today that it is now time for you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Now, you may do that and find a variety of responses. You may get an apathetic response. You may get a hostile response. You may get a tell-me-more response. These are all part and parcel of what goes on. Okay, And, and uh, as I said in Sunday school, I, I think I would much rather have a response of, of, I don't say anger, uh, a response of, of uh, mm, something along the lines of anger rather than of apathy. If you've ever shared the gospel and had somebody go, oh, well, that's nice for you. Okay, I, I find that the most fr- frustrating response. I would rather have somebody try to get up in my face and, 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 and argue about it. Apathy means, in my mind, I the gospel hasn't really penetrated. If they're angry about it, if it upsets them, if it offends them, ah, now we're getting somewhere. Not that I purposely want to offend people, but I would rather have them at least know that the gospel is offensive, that the things of Christ call us to something different. Why is this? Remember what John says. Throughout John's gospel, we see this image again and again. Darkness hates the light. And when you shine the light of the gospel into somebody's life, they may hate it. Okay? If I come into your house at 3 in the morning and shine my flashlight in your eyes, what are you going to do? Uh, you're, somebody might shoot me. I, I don't know, 3 in the morning. But you're going to go, oh, like this. And that's the same thing. This is the truth. This is the light. And you are in darkness. And when that light hits you, some people just hate that. Some of us saw that and, and we found the answer to all the things that our hearts have been longing for. Others resist others get angry at it and they rebel at this good news of Jesus Christ so Paul was preaching boldly and with reliance upon the Lord and remember where he is at this time okay now as he goes from synagogue to synagogue it's it's every environment's a little bit different just like every church might be a little bit different there's always different kinds of people There are those who are with him when he preaches and are listening attentively, and then there are those who are against him as he preaches in the synagogue. And he preaches about the riches of Christ. He preaches and proclaims the gospel that unbelievers can find life, that they can find all the things that their hearts have been desiring and and longing for. These things are found in Christ, for you were created for his purposes and his glory. But what happens in the midst of this? Look at verse 4 and 5. Paul's preaching. But the multitude of the city was divided. Some sided with Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. Understand, this is, in a sense, an unholy alliance has been created here against the gospel. The Jews didn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. 
The Jews didn't go over to the Gentiles' houses. They didn't do business with them. In fact, if there was a group of Gentiles on the street and, and a Jewish person was walking, they would go to the other side of the street around them so that they wouldn't have any contact with the Gentiles. But here they are hearing the message of life that they so desperately need, and they conspire, the Jews and Gentiles together conspire to get rid of this messenger, the one who is preaching the things that they need the most. It is an unholy alliance. It would be, oh, I can't even imagine, you know, people who don't talk, you know, two neighbors who who hate one another decide they hate you more, and they get together and and scheme against you. You've got... um, you know, some Republicans and Democrats who are on opposite ends, and all of a sudden they scheme against things that are righteous. I, you know, it's, it's hard to make the, the proper illustration here because these are such enemies, culturally, religiously. Just, just, they just don't have anything to do with one another. But yet here comes the message of truth, and they conspire together against what is holy and righteous and just. And they say, we have to get rid of this guy. We have to get him out of here. Um, so, uh, so they leave town. Okay, so they leave town. Uh, six. They they became aware of what was going on and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, Derby, and the surrounding region. And there, what did they do? They continued to preach the gospel. That's what they were about. Now, Lystra. This this is a small town about twenty miles uh, southwest of Iconium. There's no synagogue there. So Paul is probably now, verse 8 on, preaching out in the marketplace, in the open square, where people would gather on a regular basis. This is a city whose only religious affiliation is with paganism. There's no message here that Paul can draw from the Old Testament. He can't talk about Abraham or Isaac. He can't talk about Jacob. He can't talk about the prophets because they have no background in these things. They have no understanding uh, there's no common basis there to build for Paul as there were in other towns where there was a synagogue. These people are straight pagans. In fact, they worship some very interesting gods, as we'll see in just a moment. So it's a very different context here. So Paul begins, as he talks about things, he begins with a sign from God. Verse 8. And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. If you're thinking, go back to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3. If you're thinking, you're saying, this sounds very familiar. Here's a lame man outside of a temple, and this is a pagan temple, and along comes one of the apostles, and he's going to heal him. Hmm, sounds vaguely familiar from Acts chapter 3. So let's go back here to Acts chapter 3, and I'll read a little bit. This is Peter and John. Peter and John were going up to the temple. This is the temple in Jerusalem, the ninth hour of prayer. And a certain man who had become lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. He began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, 
He stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple, begging alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now go back to Acts 14. There was a certain man sitting without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, all of his life. These two guys, as an example, everybody knew that they had never walked in their entire life. Never once had they'd walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he fixed his gaze upon him, had seen that he had faith to be made well. Now, sometimes people are made well to illustrate the things of Christ as a sign. Sometimes there is, the Lord has planted faith in their life, and they have the faith to believe. This man is hearing what Paul was saying. Now, Paul's not into a full-blown gospel presentation yet, but it, is, it has got this guy's heart seeking the things of the Lord. Let's just say that. So this man, 9... This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him, had seen that he had faith to be made well, the Lord must have shown Paul this, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now, this is in front of a pagan temple. The other was in front of the temple in Jerusalem. The gospel is the same. The power of the gospel is the same. The gospel doesn't only work in Jerusalem. It works everywhere. And here you have right in front of this pagan temple... The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ being manifest in this guy's life, and he gets up and walks. Now, you can imagine if we had somebody in this congregation that everybody knew, and from birth they were a certain way, and somebody walks in and says, In the name of Jesus Christ, walk, and their legs. I mean, this is a very, in a medical thing, this would be a very complex item. You know, a muscle that is not used atrophies, all the ligaments, everything. There's no strength there. We think of how thin his legs would be if they had never been used. And suddenly, in an instant, they are restored to complete strength and complete use. He just didn't get up and totter. He got up and what? Stand upright. And he began to walk. He leapt up and began to walk. This is the power of the gospel that Paul is preaching here. Now... You come to a pagan city, you do a miracle, what happens? They must be gods. Nobody's ever said that to me. Nobody's ever. My dog might think that I'm there, but nobody's ever said, you must be a god. No. They said the gods have become like men and come down among us. Now, there's some history and culture here that you have to understand as to why they would say this. Why they would say this. And it comes from some of the writings of the Roman poet Ovid. He wrote Metamorphosis. Okay, about, and according to Ovid's story, Zeus and Hermes, Zeus the chief god, Hermes the talking god, that's why they called Paul Hermes, because he spoke the most, had once visited a valley near Lystra. They went from door to door and nobody invited them in. Finally, they came to a cottage where a poor couple took them in fed them, gave them a bed for the night, and not knowing they were gods. But because of their hospitality, the two gods turned this poor couple's cottage into a golden-roofed temple, but they destroyed the selfish people who had refused to take them in. Okay, This is written by Ovid, the Roman poet. So the people of Lystra 
had this in their mind, that this actually happened, and they said, we're not going to let this happen again. We're not going to let the, the gods destroy us. Zeus and Hermes have come. Let's get some oxen and sacrifice and garland and worship these two guys because anybody that can heal them must be a god. Somebody at this point, perhaps Timothy, who was a convert from this area, comes and tells them what they're saying. Because remember, they're talking now in the Lystronian language, which Paul and Barnabas did not understand. And Paul does what any person raised in a Jewish world would do in a time of mourning. He rips his clothes. That was a sure sign of sorrow and angst and, 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 and a terribleness with inside of him. And he begins to talk, verses 15 through 17. Let's review this and see what he says. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And that's sinful nature, he says. And preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from the vain things to a living God. Now, he does remember he can't go to the Old Testament to preach. So he's building this common ground with them. And he talks about God in this fashion. The God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is within them. And almost to cut off some some, uh, conversation ahead of time, we see verse 16 as if he's anticipating an objection. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Yes, this Lord exists, but sometimes he has let them go into error for his purposes. And yet he did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He did not leave himself without a witness. You may think that God does not exist in that pagan city, but the Lord is showing his mercy and his compassion and his power there. He did good towards them. He gave them rain for fruitful, fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and with gladness. Paul is basically preaching the providence of God to them. And there, with, without having to go to the Old Testament, he's preaching the providence of God through the works of God in creation and how that has impacted their lives. Paul does basically the same thing in Acts chapter 18 when he preaches to the Athenians that we'll see in a little bit. Paul has not yet come to the gospel. He has not yet talked about Jesus Christ. He's establishing some common ground, this platform with which to work with them. And he's inter- he begins to introduce this idea of a God who is providential, who holds them accountable and accountable to the things of sin. Now remember in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, we see that they, they not only... They see the things of God in the world, but they, they do what? They suppress the things of God. They suppress the truth that is clearly seen. And this is coming to fruition now here in, in the response that we see. Let's look at verse 18. And even saying these things, they were with difficulty restraining the crowds from offering them offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They've come a hundred miles to pursue Paul and Barnabas. Now, you think you get in the car and drive a hundred miles today. You know, what's that? An hour and ten minutes? No, I was going to be longer now. I've got, you know, an hour, an hour, and, uh, hour and a half or, or so. This was a serious trip. 
a hundred miles. Why? Because they're going to get Paul and Barnabas. Because they have this hatred in their life. This is the suppression that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. That even the natural man knows this God that he sees in the world and he suppresses it. He lives in hostility towards it. That hostility now rises up in this antagonism. That they would come 100 miles to persecute the one who brings the good news of Christ. 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. They won over the multitudes. It doesn't say they did. they healed the guy. It doesn't say they did any great miracles. It just says they won over the multitudes. These people who were ready to sacrifice oxen and worship Paul and Barnabas as gods now are stoning them. Such was this hatred and vitriol that was stirred up by these people who had come a hundred miles just to try to attempt to suppress the truth of the gospel. But while the disciples stood around him, he rose and entered the city, the one that they had just left and stoned him at, okay? Entered the city. And the next day, he went away with Paul and with Barnabas to Derby. Now, I would think after almost dying from a stoning, he would want a couple weeks at the beach to recuperate. But that's not the way that Paul works. 21, and after they had preached the gospel to that city, they immediately hauled off, went to another city, and preached the gospel, and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That's the place where that crowd left and went 100 miles just to persecute him, and he went back to deal with the believers there, to encourage the church. Let's look and see what happened in 22. Strengthening the souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders, that's the beginning of the structure of the church here, for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul is stoned, left for dead. He gets back up, goes back to the, the in a sense, uh, the, right back into the, the lion's den and preaches the gospel again. He works with the church. He strengthens those believers. See, people will love the message of the gospel, and they'll show that by their belief. They'll show that by their changed lives. When you communicate the gospel to them and they believe and it's real, there will be a changed life. There will be fruit. That will flow from their belief. People will hate the gospel, and they will show that hatred from their apathy all the way to their outright hostility because you brought the gospel. Remember, Jesus says, they hated me, they'll hate you. Beautiful are the feet who bring the message of the good news, the message of the good tidings. Some people will think our feet are terribly ugly because we bring that message of good news. Because their hearts are hardened, their eyes are closed. They hate the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. This is the end of the first missionary journey of Paul. There are three total. He would go out and travel on these long routes Visiting the churches, planning the churches, preaching gospel, getting stoned, getting beaten, getting shipwrecked, getting 
bitten by serpents, all of these things just to fulfill the call of the Lord upon his heart. And that is to tell people about the truth, the truth that they so desperately need. They go out and preach the gospel. They face persecution, but they complete the work that the Lord calls them to. Their persistence in this preaching to this intense opposition. I I don't even understand opposition that intense, but it was amazing. Nothing seemed to stop these guys. Now, most of us have never known any persecution that compares with what Paul and Barnabas went through. But you will catch criticism and you will catch persecution if you attempt to serve the Lord. It's just be ready for it. It's what will happen. How will you respond to that type of test? Will it shut down your willingness to share the gospel if somebody yells at you? If somebody says, oh, don't give me that Jesus stuff, will you not talk to them again? If somebody's apathetic to you, will you go, well, I'm going to wipe the dust off my sandals of their life and go on to somebody else? Hmm. Paul didn't give up. Even those who wanted to kill him, he went back into that area to tell them more about the things of Christ. If you're prone to get hurt and, and offended and prone to quit, remind yourself of what Paul and Barnabas went through, the lessons that they learned. Yes, expect these things when you share the gospel. Be ready for them. But they were courageous and persistent. Now, have you ever been so persistent in the sharing of the gospel that somebody threw you out? Somebody screamed at you? I'm not going to encourage you to go do that, to be so obnoxious with the gospel that you'll be hated. But there is a persistence that comes. And and sometimes the Lord gives us an insight when we have been as persistent as we can be with somebody, and now it's time for somebody else to come and tell them about Christ. We're not supposed to fear anybody. Our fear is to only be of the, the Lord our God, the one who has made us, the one who knows everything about us. He doesn't call us to this work, nor does he equip us to this work so that we won't achieve it. He calls us and equips us so that the gospel will go forward. Be ready for what you will face from a world that hates the things of the light. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, you have changed our lives. This, this gospel has opened our eyes, and we have a new heart, and, and we've taken off the old things of our sinful self and put on the new things of Christ, and now you call us to live these things out. And Lord, you do not send us out without the right weapons. We have the helmet and the breastplate, and we have the sword, the word of God so that the things of Christ might go forward. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They cannot prevail against your power and your authority as it is made manifest in the lives of your people. Lord, the command is to go and to do these things. Give us the wisdom and the insight as to how we are to live these things out, given the gifts you have given to each of us, the personalities that we have, and the people that you put in our lives.